light a changed people, drawing closer to you and more like you. And Lord, I love you, and I just ask that you empty me of myself, that I don't get in your way, Lord, and um, be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so we're starting in 1 Samuel chapter 24, but before I get started, I wanted to share a little bit of background on both Samuel and, um, I'm sorry, Saul, Saul and David, okay? Um, Because I know a lot of ladies here know the background, but there may be someone listening for the first time that doesn't, and so it'll kind of help when we jump into chapter 24. Saul was born, or Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the smallest tribe of Israel. By God's instruction to, um, to Samuel the prophet, Saul was anointed as the king. And only because the people wanted a king like all the other nations had. They didn't want God like today. They wanted a man to rule over them. And like today, I think that's what God has given us. Um, <laughs> Saul started out as a good king, uh, but he failed in disobedience to the Lord. When God commanded Saul to completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation, including all the men and women, the children and babies and the animals, the cattle and sheep, Saul spared the life of Agag, the Amalekite king. And he and his men, they plundered all of the best things for themselves, the best cattle and anything that appealed to them, they kept for themselves. Saul let his pride get in the way, and he acted on his flesh and rebelled against God's will. And another time, Saul did not wait on the Lord as instructed by the prophet Samuel. And Samuel exclaimed to Saul what a fool he had been, for if he obeyed the command of God, that God was, um, would have established his kingdom over Israel forever. But because of Saul's disobedience, his dynasty would end. And so um, Samuel told Saul that for the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. Moving on a little bit to David now, David is from the tribe of Judah, and the Bible teaches that God considered David a man after his own heart. And because God sees the heart of man and knows its intent, he had chosen David. David was the youngest of several brothers, and the Bible describes him, describes him as a young, ruddy lad. And ruddy is like a reddish complexion. So he may have had red hair. I don't know. I couldn't find that. (laughs) I didn't look for it. Um, He was responsible for tending to his father's sheep out in the fields. And the Bible teaches that as the prophet Samuel had poured the olive oil over uh, David's head, that the spirit of the Lord came mightily. He came mightily upon David from that day on. When David went up against the giant Goliath, when all the other soldiers were frightened, he went in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. He told Goliath that everyone would know that the Lord does not need weapons to rescue his people. It's not, it was the Lord's battle and not ours. David trusted the Lord to give him the life of Goliath, and he did. The Bible teaches that David continued to succeed in everything that he did because the Lord was with him. In all of Israel and Judah, they loved David because he was so successful at leading the troops into battle. And this made Saul very jealous of David. In one day alone, Saul had 85 priests killed along with their entire families, their wives, their children and babies, and their cattle, donkeys, and sheep. 
Nothing was spared, all because the priest Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for David. Saul was eager to kill David many times, ordering others to carry out his plan, but he never succeeded because the Lord was with David. When Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of David. Psalm 18, David wrote of how the Lord delivered him from Saul and from the hands of his enemies because of God's protection over him. When Saul tried to give David his older daughter, David humbly declined Saul's offer, saying that his family wasn't worthy of being related to the king. Even Saul's son, Jonathan, pleaded with his father to not sin against David, reminding Saul that David had never harmed him, but rather always did what he could to help Saul. And how much humility must one have to do good to those who want to harm them, right? Certainly, it's not a customary reaction. The natural reaction is to get even with those who insult us. When Saul realized how much the Lord was with David and how much his younger daughter loved David, who, by the way, became his wife, making David now Saul's son-in-law, David was even more afraid, or I'm sorry, Saul was even more afraid of David and stayed his enemy from then on. And it was incredible how obsessed Saul was with trying to capture David and kill him because he was on route trying to catch David But he had to stop because the Philistines then began attacking and they had to go and fight the Philistines. But as soon as they were done fighting the Philistines, he picked up right off where he left and came back to fight or chase after David. And this brings us into 1 Samuel chapter 24. So we'll start with verses 1 and 2. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. Here Saul wasn't taking any chances on letting David get away. After all, he had made many unsuccessful attempts thus far. So he chose 3,000 men from a select group of superior quality and able men to accompany him in chasing David. Verses 3. At the, at the place where the road passes some sheepfolds at the place where the road passes some sheepfolds Saul went into a cave to relieve himself but it as it happened David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave Saul had to relieve himself and in other words he had to use the restroom and more than likely he went in alone because if you think about it even his closest guards would not want to be involved in that very private and personal act right so um, um, Saul nor his troops though knew or had any idea that David and his men were inside that very cave that Saul had entered into coincidence of course not makes you wonder though how Saul wouldn't have noticed David and his men inside the same cave, or it did me. But I heard a study on this particular chapter, and the pastor made a good point. He had pointed out that um, probably because Saul and his men were outside in the sunlight when he entered into this dark cave, it impaired his vision. And it's true, when you go into a room that you've been outside, it takes a while to adjust. Verse 4. Now... Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. 
So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. What? Here, David had his very enemy in a compromising position. Perhaps his robe and his clothing from the waist down were lying on the ground, a bit away out of his reach so that he wouldn't soil them. And oblivious to all of his surroundings and not able to see clearly, David could have easily killed him right then and there. Besides, David's men were encouraging him to take Saul out. But David, a man after God's own heart, did not take matters into his own hands because he had a promise from God. He knew God was in control. David knew it would be disobedient for him to kill Saul, for God raised him up and God would remove him. David knew it was not his place to pursue the promise that God had given him by making it happen at the work of his own hands. And ladies, let this also be a lesson to us as just because things may look aligned in our favor, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's God's will for us. And also, we must be careful with the counsel that we receive and don't get caught up into the pressing of others to act as they see fit. We must seek the will of God for us every day so that when we are hit with surprising circumstances, we know how to react just like David did. Moving on to verses 5 through 6. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to my lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. Here shows David's reverence and holy fear for his God. David knew that to sin against the Lord's anointed is to sin against God. So David's feeling conviction now about moving ahead on his spontaneous action and going ahead of the Lord. And do you remember what David said when he took down Goliath? His very words to the giant were that everyone would know that the Lord does not need weapons to rescue his people, that the battle belongs to the Lord. Verse 7, so David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul, and he did not let them kill Saul after Saul had left the cave and gone on his way. I'm sure at that point, David's men, with a love and commitment to David, were probably eager and willing to finish the job for him. They'd been on the run for too long now. They were exhausted, and most likely they longed to be home with their families instead of being out in the Engedis. They could put an end to this feud right now, but David would not condone such action. Verse 8. David came out of, the, uh, out of the cave and shouted after him, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. This verse reads that he bowed low. David bowed low to the ground. He took on a position of meekness before his king. David's submissive position showed humility because if you knew that you were anointed by God to be the next king, a lot of people might react with an I am untouchable attitude, standing tall and proud, boasting how you could have taken him out, but you chose to spare him. Okay, let's read verses 9 through 11. And then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say that I am trying to harm you? This very day, as you can see with your own eyes, it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of the men told me to kill you, but I spared you. 
For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. Remember, David's his father, um, Saul's his father-in-law. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. David wanted Saul to understand that he had no intention of taking his life. Rather, he trusted his Lord to handle the matter for him and at his perfect time. And how many times have we gone ahead of God with our plans? or reacted badly when someone has offended us. Sure, we usually feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit afterwards, but it's before reacting that we need to consider who we are. We are ambassadors of the Lord Most High, and our reaction always matters. Verses 12 through 13. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, for what you are trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As the old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds, so you can be sure I will never harm you. David was a man of great strength, and he showed it in how he conducted himself through meekness. He did not have a spirit of evil or vengeance residing within. Therefore, he refused to take revenge into his own hands. Verses 14 and 15. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate, and he will rescue me from your power. Early on when Saul offered his oldest daughter as David's wife, his response was that his family were lowly and not worthy to be a part of the king's family. And here, David is comparing his own life to that of a dead dog or a single flea, that of absolutely no value. He wanted Saul to understand he was wasting his time chasing him, for he didn't consider himself to be of importance or of high reputation or seeking a position of status. His life was in the hands and will of God. Verse 16, when David had finished speaking, Saul called back, Is that really you, my son, David? And then he began to cry. Well, I don't know about you all, but he would not be fooling me with those fake tears. The whole reason for him being there in the first place, chasing David up into the wilderness of the Engedi, was so that he can kill him. Remember, God's word tells us and teaches us to be gentle, but wise also. Finishing up in verses 17 through 22. And he said to David, You are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today. For when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for the kindness you have shown me today. And now I realize that you are surely going to be a king and the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Now swear to me by the Lord that when that happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. So David promised this to Saul with an oath. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went back to their stronghold. And there did come a time later 
when David got to honor his promise to Saul to not kill his family nor destroy his line of descendants, when he took on Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, the son of David's beloved friend, Jonathan. And I wondered, though, that maybe David and his men, they didn't go back, they went back to the stronghold. They didn't end up going back home like Saul did. And was that to give them space and time in between, you know, just to be sure? I think he was just being wise. Despite the season of contention with Saul, David continued to live a life of humility and meekness because he knew that God was in control of his life. Remember, when he was anointed to be the next king, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And apart from the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we cannot exhibit a life of humility. Colossians 3 verse 12 reads, Since God chose you to be the people he loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Even being God's people, it's still a daily struggle. We battle continually with our flesh that tries to react whenever we are scorned. It's always in the way, like, I got this. And we are like, no, you don't. And so what we need to do is we need to call out to the Lord Jesus and to help us to do the right thing. Otherwise, we end up acting out on our flesh. It is always difficult to speak on humility and meekness without mentioning pride. After all, pride, it is the factor that keeps us from having a humble and meek spirit. Pride is conceit and inordinate self-esteem. In other words, being full of yourself. Pride is disdainful behavior. That is to act superior, mean, or arrogant, not qualities any of us here want to be known for. Pride is the ruin of men and women, and the Bible teaches that God does not honor a haughty spirit. It was pride that caused Satan to fall from heaven. He went from a glorified state to profane, all because he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be above all his peers, all the other angels. His desire was their worship for himself, just like they worshiped God. And you can read on that on Isaiah 14, chapter 14. Even the garden decided that she wanted to be as wise as her creator by choosing to take the fruit after being tempted by the serpent. Because the serpent told her, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, verse 5. It was pride that influenced both her and Adam's decision to sin, causing the fall of man. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Having a humble and meek spirit is taking on a position of a bondservant. In Old Testament days, bondservants were to do only as ordered by their master. They couldn't decide for themselves what was next. They had to rely on the decisions made for them by their master and and submit obediently. The Bible teaches that we are to be in sincere of heart and to do as unto the Lord and not to men, not with eye service as men pleasers. That means do well, do what is expected of you. Even when no one is looking, the Lord sees you. It is Christ Jesus in us. It is humility, his humility and meekness in us that motivates us to serve others. True humility is difficult because true humility takes on the form of a servant. And truthfully, 
most of us would rather be served than to serve. But servants should not be concerned with receiving recognition for their actions, and they should never be in competition uh, with those who serve alongside them. On the contrary, Jesus says that we are to put others first, making them more important than ourselves. I read that the Greek word for meekness is praus, which is defined as strength under control. The word praus comes from an ancient military training term, and the Greek word was used to define a horse trained for battle. Wild stallions were brought down from the mountains and broken for riding. Some were used to pull wagons, some were used for racing, but the best were trained for warfare. These horses retained their fierce spirit, courage, and power, but were disciplined to respond to the slightest nudge of pressure of the rider's leg. They could gallop into battle at 35 miles per hour and come to a sliding stop at just a word. They were not frightened by arrows or spears or torches. These stallions were said to be meat. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to get a water. <clears throat> to be meeked was to be taken from a state of wild rebellion and made completely loyal to and dependent upon one's master. These war horses were described as meek because their strength was under total control. We are taught that meekness is not weakness as the world sees it. In fact, meekness is actually the place of greatness or of great strength because we give God final say in our lives, making that the highest place to be under the control of our Creator. Our perfect example of humility and meekness, of course, is Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He is our humble King in the flesh. John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. <clears throat> Jesus was before all creation, because Jesus is God. He is creator of all things, the heavens, the sun and moon, stars and planets, the waters and plants and trees, the atmosphere, animals and fish of every kind, and of man, everything, he is creator. My pages are sticking. And we can only imagine what heaven is like. Do we envision heaven to be like the celestial city in Pilgrim's Progress? Um, some of you may not be familiar with that. That's an allegory that we used in one of our Bible st uh, studies, and it's a book by Paul, Paul, John. John Bunyan. <laughs> I had it written. Thank you. Okay. Or do we imagine the onyx, the rubies and sapphires, pearls and gems described in the book of Revelation by John? Or perhaps we consider it to be a place where we once again get to see our loved ones who have left us early on. We all have an idea of what perfection might be like, but the Bible declares that heaven, in heaven, there is no more death, no sorrow, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. 
Revelation 21. It is the perfect place of eternal joy. Why? Because that is where God is. Yet out of love and compassion for us, God the Son chose to come down from the glory of heaven as a man, as the created creature, to save us all. That's everyone, to save us from eternal death. Our sovereign king draped himself with human flesh so that the sins of the world would, could be forgiven, so that those who choose him will be saved. You see, the first step to salvation is humility, and Jesus took that first step to show us the way. He came by way of entering into this unruly world as a newborn babe, not arranging for a grand entrance, a parade, or sending formal announcements ahead of time for his arrival, but rather by taking his first human breath as an infant, helpless and reliant on the breast of his mother, within a manger where cattle and donkey are kept. Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, was placed in a feeding trough padded with hay and wrapped in cloth. And there lie the salvation of the world. If you will, please turn with me now to Luke chapter 14. Okay. All throughout Jesus' ministry here on earth, he was constantly teaching his disciples, his followers, and even those who opposed him, like the Pharisees, about godly living, about humility and meekness. In Luke chapter 14, it happened one day that Jesus went to the home of one of the rulers of the Pharisees for dinner. All the guests were keeping an eye on Jesus to see what he would do next, but Jesus had his eyes on them as well. Reading in chapter 14, verses 7 and 9. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best seats, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take a lower place. Jesus pointed out their outward behavior. It was because he loved them that he was most concerned with exposing their hearts, that they might recognize their need for salvation. The writer of Proverbs 25, verse 6 said, Don't demand an audience with the king or push for a place among the great. It is better to wait for an invitation than to be sent to the end of the line publicly disgraced. These men Jesus spoke to were supposed to be teachers of God's word. They knew what the Proverbs taught, but instead they were completely ignoring it, the word of God, being most concerned with sitting in the best seats of the home and raising themselves up. Earlier in chapter 11, Jesus had rebuked them for their love of the best seats in the the synagogue and for receiving respectful Greetings from everyone as they walked through the marketplaces, pompous and grand, as though it was due them. Observing these so-called religious rulemakers who were dominated by their flesh, 
competing amongst themselves for the best status and position, Jesus made it clear to them that their actions were ungodly and not a good way to live. Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. Let's read verses 10 and 11. But when you are invited to go and sit down in the lowest place, but when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The life that God honors is the life that denies itself. Jesus said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way and take up your cross and follow me. Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus was showing these religious and powerful men that the religious and powerful men, that the way that they seated themselves at the table revealed their hearts were far from being right with God. Their only concern was self. It can be annoying to see, to see haughtiness in others, and quite often we react the same manner because we are sinful people. But thank God that we are saved by grace. And if anyone has here or listening hasn't made that choice for Jesus yet, it's never, or it's not too late. I should not say never, but it's not too late to make that choice now. Moving on to verses 12 through 14. Then Jesus also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Here Jesus challenges these religious leaders to include those who are unable to return the favor, to do for those who are hurting and without, for those who may maybe cannot afford to have them over or have the means to bless them back. No, there will not be any social media posting about how you had a fabulous dinner and made a wonderful hostess for the night, nor will there be any recognition for your hospitality and generosity. But you will glorify the Lord in blessing others outside of your inner circle. But I don't think that this group, of, that this group was willing to give up their prestigious positions just yet. To them, humility was a sign of weakness and inferiority. The world knows nothing about living humbly, about taking the last or lowest place. The world dictates that in doing so, you are considered to be weak, inadequate, perhaps, unsuccessful, maybe even a pushover. The, world views, the world's view is that you should be bold, be first, take your place, look out only for yourself. Me is number one. But the faithful, the humble at heart, they are okay with receiving their reward in heaven. Unlike these religious leaders, they aren't looking to be in high positions. Instead, they seek to honor and glorify their Lord. Jesus taught in Matthew 10, verse 42, that whoever gives even a cup of cold water to someone in need will by no means lose his reward, for nothing done goes unseen by the Father. 
no matter how great or how small. Psalm 25, verse 9. He leads the humble in doing right, teaching them his way. Because of the human condition that we are in, in the world, there isn't a place that we can turn to that there isn't an opportunity for or a temptation to do the wrong thing. We can turn away from sin, but we can't hide from it. As Bible-believing Christians, we must be careful in how we conduct our lives. In Luke 17, verses 3 through 4, Jesus taught, If your brother, or in tonight's case, your sister, sins against you, let her know so that she has an opportunity to repent, and then forgive her. And if she sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times she repents and says that she's sorry, then forgive her that many times. I'm convinced that from humility stems... Sorry, it's stuck. (laughs) It got stuck on the table. I'm convinced that from humility stems forgiveness, grace, gentleness, kindness, love, and all the other attributes of our Savior. Without humility, we cannot find it in or of ourselves to react towards others in in such ways as the aforementioned. But it is Jesus in us. Jesus came down from heaven to serve those that he came to save. He came to serve sinners. His ministry didn't con- uh, consist of a time clock. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus was, what, Jesus was up way before the dawn to start his day in prayer with meeting with the Father and returning way late when the sun had already gone down and the moon had taken over. And in between those hours, he ministered all day to the multitudes and anyone in his path. Through saving, healing, feeding, teaching, rebuking, and blessing, Jesus was poured out constantly for people and their need. But he never talked down to people. He always spoke to them in a way that showed love, compassion, hope, and a humble spirit. He met people where they were and helped them for their good. Mark 10, verse 45 For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Humility is a big part of servanthood, and sometimes having a servant heart is not as easily done as it is learned of in the Bible. Since we can only account for our own attitude and our own reactions, there sometimes others we serve with maybe have maybe behave ill-mannered or have a pride-filled attitude or, or maybe even have worldly motives, like those we work with and while out in public, or maybe even some we serve with within the church, as sad as that sounds. Jesus taught that we should not resist an evil person, that whoever slaps us on the right cheek turn the other to him also, meaning do not retaliate when met with rude behavior from others. Rather, show them kindness, and the Bible says, For so you will reap coals of fire on his or her head, and the Lord will reward you. And it's true, because I have a neighbor, and it seems, and she seems very stern because she never, ever smiles. And I catch her staring every once in a while, like when I pull up to go into my garage. And for a long time, I would never speak to her, mostly because I was afraid of how she might react and how mean she looked, 
really, because she never, ever smiles. She's very serious. And, she's, and I recall one time, two years ago, that her daughter-in-law had come to me asking for prayer, and she was crying one day. And she was saying how mean this woman was to her. I guess she, they, her and her husband, the, the, she's the mother of the son, and they lived there in the, the house. And she said how mean she was and that she couldn't take it anymore. So I prayed with her. But unfortunately, she ended up moving out by herself, leaving her, her two children, her two children and her husband, and their marriage ended. But like a year ago, the Lord had showed me that if I am supposed to be salt and light, I need to make the first move because I know Jesus. So now, when she's outside, which she's always fussing with her plants and plucking out weeds from her little flower bed area, I say, hello, and then she says, hello, because she has a real deep voice. And she doesn't really look at me. She just, as I'm walking by, she says, hello. I, maybe she's looking through the side of her eye. And then her eye say, hi, and she goes, hi, because I come back from my walk at lunchtime, so I, I run into her a lot. And then I'll say, sometimes I'll ask her now, so how are you doing today? Fine. Like, okay, have a good day. I'll just keep on walking. So recently, I pulled up um, in my driveway, and I got out of the car, and then I walked over to look at my plants. And then she was standing there plucking her weeds and her little flower buds and stuff. And then she looked at me, and so I smiled at her. And she smiled back. So we're making progress. <laughs> so that's a good thing. <laughs> so I don't know that we're going to have coffee together or anything, but, you know, we can, we can be nice, right? <laughs> Jesus taught that we should love our enemies. And though we may not have enemies that are trying to kill us, such as David did, maybe your employer... Maybe you are employed at a job where your supervisors are unfair or dislike you a little bit because your work ethic, it uh, reflects integrity, and they do not, and they ask you to do things you shouldn't, and you refuse. Maybe there's a neighbor that is constant, a constant nuisance or doesn't want to smile, or a family member that has shunned you because of a misunderstanding and refuses to reason, forgive, or even be a part of the family any longer. We are to love them and pray for them because God loves them, and we are of God. Jesus loved. He loved all, from the religious leaders who despised him, to his faithful followers, to his disciple Judas Iscariot, who he knew would betray him for 30 coins. Before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, he displayed the lowest act of humility known to mankind. In those days, only sandals were worn, so by the end of the day and with unpaved roads throughout the towns, feet were filthy. But after dinner, Jesus took a towel. He wrapped it around his waist, filled a basin with water, and washed the feet of each of his disciples. The greatest, greatest act of humility and servanthood. This was to be considered the lowest deed of any servant. The disciples, they were stunned because they knew who Jesus was. And here he was washing their feet. Immediately, their thoughts must have been, oh my goodness, we should be washing his feet. And of course, outspoken Peter made that very thought clear as Jesus approached him. The very act of feet washing was in contrast to their attitude, to the attitude of the disciples that night. Because just a little bit earlier in the evening, a dispute had broken out amongst them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. 
John 13, verses 12 through 17. And when he had finished washing their feet, he asked them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Serving God's people takes of our time, our sleep, our energy, ourselves, like giving up certain things we'd like to do on certain things so that we can make ourselves available to others instead. Serving God's people takes up long hours of our day or multiple days here at church or out on the field. It is the humility of Jesus in us and his love for us that motivates the heart of the servant. We love because he first loved us. Our, greatest, our Lord's greatest display of humility, of love really, was how he endured the mockery and false accusations made against him, for many did not believe that him to be God. The rejection by the many souls that he left heaven for to come down and save, it had to have broken his heart. The soldiers made a crown of long, sharp thorns and put it on his head, pressing it into his scalp, causing him to bleed as the thorns pierced his skin. They put a royal purple robe on him and shouted, Hail the king of the Jews! And they mocked him as they hit him with their fists and spit upon him. Then being stripped of his clothing before all and beaten with a Roman scourge, which is made up of several leather thongs fastened to a handle, with each thong having shards of bone and metal or lead tips that tore into his flesh and ripped open our Lord's back, as with each lashing, a total of 39. Isaiah 52, verse 14 in the New Living Translation describes, Many were amazed when they saw him, beaten and bloodied, so disfigured, one would scarcely know he was a person. And as if that wasn't enough, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, Crucify! Crucify! And others joined them, shouting the demand. And when Pilate took him back into the headquarters again, he asked him, Where are you from? Don't you know I have the power to release you or to crucify you? Our humble king chose to stay silent at the very moment, at that very moment, the Son of God could have called to the Father to provide legions of angels to come down from the heavenlies and wipe out this entire brood of rebels. But instead, he chose humble obedience to God the Father for our sake. Matthew 26, verse 53. This has to be the highest form of humility ever shown in history. Jesus came down as 100% man to show us that it is possible for us to live humble and meek lives. For in his being here on earth, though also 100% God, he never used his authority. 
Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 reads, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. For it is only with the mind of Christ that we can love our enemies and bless them that curse us and do good to them who hate us and pray for them who despitefully use us and persecute us. It is only with the mind of Christ that we can esteem others more highly than ourselves. John 19, verse 16. So they took Jesus and led him away to be crucified. Already, Jesus had lost lots of blood and fluids from the abuse of beating that he received. He had to carry the cross himself, which weighed anywhere from two to three hundred pounds, being made of solid wood. He continued on the path up the hill, estimated to be a little under half a mile. But he was already so weak from the scourging and the blood loss. Therefore, it was a great struggle, and it seemed to have taken such a long time to reach the hill Golgotha. Jesus humbly proceeded toward the hill, till a soldier ordered a man by the name of Simon Cyrene to help Jesus carry the cross. At the top of the hill, when reached, he was laid on the cross with his arms outstretched, willingly for our sake. Were seven to nine inch nails, long, were seven to nine inch long iron metal nails were pierced into his hands and feet. As the cross was raised upright, our Lord was crucified, left to die the death of a criminal, though he had no sin at all. The soldiers then took his garments and made four parts, and to each soldier a part was given. And for our Lord's tunic, they cast lots to see who would get that. Jesus, knowing all things were, accom were accomplished and that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. A sponge with sour wine put on a hyssop was put to his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. As sad as this portion of our study is, and as we remember all that our Lord did by taking on the sins of the world through his death on the cross, for all who proclaim him as Lord and Savior, that they will be saved, we, who have made that choice to be followers of Christ, know the outcome very well. In four weeks from now, we will be celebrating Resurrection Sunday, the day that our Lord Christ, our Lord Christ Jesus rose from heaven I'm sorry, rose from the grave, conquered death, just as he had promised. He is risen. Our Savior lives. In closing, I'd like to share this with you before ending. Um, my husband had brought me a daily devotional that he subscribes to, and many of you know my husband. He's such a sweetheart. He's really humble. And he's always taking care of me and always supports me in everything I do in the ministry that I serve in. But um, he came into my office, and I call it my office. It's the back room, but I call it my office because I work there five days a week. And he said, look, my love, I got this devotional today that I read, and it looks really perfect for what you're working on for the women. So I did. I read it, and it is perfect to share with you, and it reads, 
Contention can cause pain, especially when we feel misunderstood or wrongly accused. If someone speaks untruths about us, it seems as though salt is being poured into the wound. A typical first reaction is self-defense and an attempt to claim our rights. Yet God's word teaches a different approach. Contrary to our natural inclinations, the proper response to criticism and conflict is humility. In Psalm 7, David laments being persecuted, but immediately asks the Lord to test his own heart and reveal if he has done anything wrong. Then, instead of taking matters into his own hands, he asks the Lord to vindicate him. Romans 12 verse 19 reminds us never to take our own revenge, but rather to leave vengeance to God. As verse 21 tells us, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, we must leave the situation with God and trust him to vindicate us in his time and way. We should ask ourselves, am I willing to teach my own motive? Am I willing to check my own motives before pointing a finger or becoming defensive? Jesus said, we are to bless those who curse us, Luke 6, verse 29. So let us ask him for the grace and humility to examine our own heart and trust him to be our defender. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you, Lord God, for this evening. Thank you, Father, for the blessed opportunity to be used by you, Lord. It's a humbling position, Father. And I pray, Lord, that you just bless the women. May we remember what we learned today. I thank you, Father, for all that you taught me as I studied at your feet. And I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in and through us, because that is our desire, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.